There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good right. lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. All my David, Kieran Murphy, and Ken Erdy all here and ready to go. Hello, Owen. Hello there, folks. Nice. The Irish team to play France this Saturday is in. We've just been handed the team sheet, and first impressions are well, this is a hell of a strong lineup, but filled with uh, a couple too many fitness concerns for me to be totally comfortable here. Murph, what's the team in full? Okay, let's do it. Rob Kearney, Tommy Bull, Jared Payne, Robbie Henshaw, Simon Zeeble, Johnny Sexton, Connor Murray. In the forward package, Jack McGrath, Rory Best, Mike Ross, Devon Toner, Paul O'Connell, back row of Peter Romani, Sean O'Brien, and Jamie Heaslip. And the replacements, we might as well run through them as well. Sean yep. Cronin, Keen Healy, Marty Moore, Ian Henderson, Jordy Murphy, Isaac Boss, Ian Madigan, Felix Jones. Okay, so of the 23 players there, four who've played very little rugby recently. The positive first, that's a, that's a really strong team. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'd have a lot of confidence going in with those players against France on paper. But... I'm looking at least four of them I'd be a little bit concerned about Sean O'Brien for obvious reasons yep. he has barely played any rugby in the last year and a half uh, and he twinged his hamstring last week so there are two separate issues there there's the slight hamstring strain which clearly couldn't have been too bad if he was able to train during the week and there's also the fact that he so is so far from being battle hardened it's unbelievable we'll talk a little bit uh, in detail about this but uh, th- that is one of the concerns that I would have Sexton obviously is back in uh, you're going to put him back in, but he hasn't played any rugby for the last 12 weeks or whatever the concussion, uh, whatever the doctors over in Paris uh, decreed that it would be in the end. Jamie Heaslip has played, uh, he hasn't missed too much, but at least yeah, our indestructible guy is destructible now in Jamie Heaslip. And Keen Healy, and Keen Healy had this horrible hamstring tear and hasn't come back at all yet and is suddenly straight in on the bench against France. I don't think he's played anything for, for Leinster or for Ireland or for Wolfhounds or anything like that. So I... That would be my concern. It's always the balancing act. And Joe Schmidt usually airs on the side of... He certainly airs on the side of people who are able to train that week, as we've heard yep. uh, quite a lot so far in this Six Nations campaign. But it's, it's, the, it's the coach. It's a decision all coaches face, really, uh, on a match-by-match basis, is how much you go for the guys who are fully fit versus how much you go with the guys who you know are the best players. Yeah. I mean... I don't know, did he have much of an option? You know, Keane Healy maybe could have played for Leinster uh, or could have gone on the bench and played a half for Leinster. Um, no, well, I mean, his option is not to put him back in and I'm, I'm not sure if that's the right thing to do either. It just when when, there's, when there are a few of these players, if it was just Keane Healy on the bench, I'd say, yeah. this is amazing, with Keane Healy back on the bench. But if he's going to be coming in for a front row player and you might have already, you've got a few concerns over, particularly two guys in the back row, back row Heaslip and O'Brien, Yeah, have uh, both had issues lately. Yeah, I, like to be honest, I, I, th- I don't think... I'm yeah, worrying I, needlessly here, Murph, is that what I you're think, saying? I think you are. You know, I think uh, if you look at all of the choices individually, they actually all make a lot of sense, with the possible exception, I think, of Keane Healy, who maybe could have gone back to Leinster. But I mean, again, he's one of your mm. uh, Lions test starters, one of your very best players. Uh, like Heesop could have played at a pinch last year, last week. Sean O'Brien was picked to play last week, and these twinges happen. You know, I mean, it wasn't like you know getting shot from a gun, a hamstring tear. You know, he felt it tighten. They they made a call on the pitch, and Sexton. I mean, you're going to put Sexton in. There's part of the reason he didn't pick Heesop last week, though, if I remember correctly, is that he hadn't trained, and also that he didn't want to. With the concern, he had a concern last week about putting O'Brien and Heesop in together. If I remember correctly, it could have been those two players because he didn't want the 
back row necessarily to have two guys with concerns hanging over mm-hmm. them. Uh, you could argue, I guess, that uh, at this stage, Heaslip has has probably proved his fitness. But we'll talk to Jerry Thorny very shortly in studio about that. Tiger Woods, meanwhile, speaking of injuries, uh, and in his case, uh, just an incredible loss of any sort of form. He's taking an indefinite break from golf. He says, right now, I need a lot of work on my game and to, spill, to still spend time with the people that are important to me. My play and scores are not acceptable for tournament golf. Yeah. Kenny, are you shocked by this? No, not really. Um, I think he probably needs not to work on his game. Actually, the opposite of that. I think he just needs to get away from it for a while. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's obviously the golf is, is clearly the abiding passion of Tiger Woods' life. I mean, it's, it's what he's been doing since he was old enough to remember existing on the planet. And uh, it's obviously what he's best at in the world. But I think he's lost interest in it a little bit. I mean, he needs to escape from it. And then it's only, I think, by doing that that he might be able to re recover the sort of um, interest in it or the passion for it that he's had his Well, they talk life. about other careers. Uh, swimming is one that obviously comes to mind, mm-hmm. where... It doesn't surprise anyone when a swimmer retires at 23 years of age. In fact, that could be quite late yeah. for some swimmers uh, because they're so burnt out, because it's so physically demanding. Now, golf is physically demanding in a, in a different kind of a way. Clearly, you can still play. I mean, golf is mentally demanding, I think. It's, yeah. It's, it's sort of... And Tiger Woods has been playing at an unbelievably high level for whatever. You're, 25 you're, years? Well, you're talking even longer if you think if, as soon as... I mean, he had pressure on him from the age... from. As soon as Tiger could think, could form sentient thoughts, he ha- was having pressure applied in him by his father to be the best everywhere he went. So he's he's had that his entire career, an awful long time to be carrying that kind of baggage, even aside from the mid-career or the late-career uh, off-course scandal that, that derailed the career. E- even if that hadn't happened, there's still a lot of pressure to be dealing with for an entire career. Now, I guess he was able to do it for a certain amount of time. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on what, what your motivation is as well. I, I don't really understand Tiger Woods that well. I mean, I, you know, but he um, he clearly no longer has the motivation of of money success. It's it's like it's that can't motivate him anymore, the position that he's now in. I don't know if it ever was a big motivation for him you know, to, to get rich, to to be like the top guy. He kind of has been the top guy now. It's like, oh, I suppose I could do that again. <laughs> Maybe well, I could I'd do say, something else with the years remaining. Well, no, I'd say if you told him, listen, if you just hang on in there, you're going you're gonna to topple this McElroy kid. You're going to win another four majors. You're going to break Nicholas's record. You're going to be the top guy. I think that that's 100% still the driving force. It's just whether or not he can actually... I, there's a bit of defeatism about him, isn't there? Like, uh, It's like he doesn't really want to get down and really fight for it anymore I mean maybe someone who's who's been so dominant I mean so used to being the by far the best player when they aren't the best player anymore it's it's actually really it's difficult to deal with it's like well hang on I'm obviously I'm broken there's something wrong or oh maybe I'm not really into this anymore where someone who was who was kind of always more of a uh, you know, struggler and uh, struggler is the wrong word, but someone who was kind of pushing to be yeah, in the I mean, top if, group. If, if he'd had, a, is kind of more used to used to being out of it for bits, and is kind of more is more used to the idea of gonna I'm gonna have to struggle and work to get back to that. If he had a rival who had won eight majors over the course of his career, maybe he he w- he would feel kind of differently about it. Is that kind of what you're saying? That well, what I'm saying is if if you give um, it's always it's always best to reduce these complex. Uh, human psychological situations down to what happens when you do an experiment with rats in a laboratory. Okay. So if you um, if you have a rat and every time he presses a lever, he gets a reward. Yeah. Right? And he'll obviously keep pressing that lever and he can get the reward, whatever it is, a pellet or mm. a piece of water with some cocaine in it. Um, he'll keep doing that. Uh, but if, but if, if it's so that every time he presses the lever, he gets a reward. When you stop rewarding him. If you say, say he presses the lever, he stops pressing the lever almost immediately. He's like, oh, well, that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Whereas if it's one every 15 times, he suddenly gets a payout, like a randomized sort of thing, he'll, he'll basically be there pressing that lever forever. He'll be like, this thing's going to work again. Now, I know, I know I've been doing this a long time, but <laughs> it, it is going to work again. Trust me, I just need to keep plugging away in this thing. Whereas if it's been like 100% reinforcing and suddenly mm. stops, he goes, oh, well, that's done. You know, I think Tiger Woods is one of like the first group of rats. 
He's only 39 years of age. I say yeah, only. But, yeah, but I mean, you say only, but... Vijay Singh was kicking ass in his 40s. But realistically, after about 43, they don't, they don't really yeah, win majors. Yeah, 40s is, early 40s, a few of them have done very well. They don't certainly rack up too many of them in there. I mean, given, given the whole thing for Tiger Woods is like passing out Jack Nichols. He needs to win five majors. Yeah, four. Four will pass Is he out. four? If four will pass the match? Five. Five pass the match, sorry. Four will, four will equal Jack yeah. Nicholas. So five majors. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen, no. So again, it's, it's almost like, well, you know, like I've, I've, I've made a mess of it. My career is, is gone. Now, maybe if he was to get away from golf completely. Yeah. And then, you know, he might sort of be drawn back to it with a new kind of energy, a new sort of attitude. I think maybe that might happen. I, I think if he just keeps going in this grim sort of defeatist way, just getting worse and worse... I don't, I don't see any way back from. Malachi Clerken is going to come into the studio and talk to us about that. I do want to let you know about a very exciting night we've got on Monday week, February 23rd, 7pm. We're all geared up for this. The Irish Times Second Captain Sports Night with Rabo Direct. If you want details on it, just get on to irishtimes.com forward slash second captains. But we're going to have uh, a massive build-up to Ireland, England and the Six Nations. Loads of great guests there. Some food, drink. All the, you, you'll, you'll be entertained. That's the Murph, you can guarantee that, can't you? you can give you yeah, a Mur- Murph guarantee of entertainment. Giving it a Murph guarantee. <laughs> All right. Owen. And you know and you don't, my you, word is yeah, luck. You do not dole out those guarantees. Around this lightly. town, people know what a Murph guarantee means, Owen. <laughs> yeah. In the meantime, let's dip into this. That's just the website again. It's the, the home, our homepage on the Irish Times website, irishtimes.com forward slash second captains for all the details. In the meantime, let's dip, dip into this little satchel here. See what you've had to say this week. I've got a call here that says, you're the most boring, predictable, condescending interviewer around. Go back to lecturing. You have the charisma of a sick bag. Oh, God. That's just it. I just Whoa. mentioned, not you, no me. Okay. Ain't nobody with my click. We don't normally click. broadcast click. all the, the stuff click. that comes from scum click. around the country. Ain't nobody fresher than my mama. Click, 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 click. Okay, we have... Uh, I'm supposed to wait for the explosion at the end, Murphy. We always... I don't know what it is. Sorry. We can't quite get the timing right there. But uh, who is today's scumbag? <laughs> John Indita. Oh, it is Hi, the John. answer to that question. He emailed in to secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. Hi, Owen. Just wondering how you would categorise the Balotelli celebration against Spurs. It was a non-celebration, but not against a former club. In my opinion, with the retirement of Thierry Henry. There is a real gap in the market there for the too-cool-to-celebrate footballer. Yours, John. John, John, John. I've been through this before. You scum! Only, only last Actually, yeah, that that is the email of a scum. <laughs> of a, just, just a just a piece of scum there. A scum, John and Nina. A scum, scumbag. You've hinted at it here. There is a very clear differential between the player not celebrating versus his former club, which is just the ultimate in a statement of false modesty and this ridiculous idea of professionalism and loyalty to insincerity, and a player not celebrating. Just a normal goal against uh, against another team. The well, maybe Thierry Henry was a little insincere in his. But Mario Balotelli, Murphy, you tweeted last night. Balotelli's celebration was totally sincere. It was exactly what he was feeling at that moment, yeah. which is what he always feels in a football pitch, which is hard to quantify unless you say he just feels nothing. Hmm. Well, he feels like it's kind of annoying that he has to, you know, do this a few times a month to justify his people paying him large amounts of money. I mean, I, th- I think he burns the injustice of that. Um, but I mean, no, I mean, you know, I, I just don't think that he got that excited about it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 that's, you can psychoanalyze Mario Balotelli all you like. But scoring the winner for Liverpool against Spurs with eight minutes to go in a packed Anfield just really doesn't... doesn't do it for me, really. Well, I mean, there's, I tweeted something about this. On the, I was like, how does Balotelli not smile after that? And I'm, you know, I'm kind of thinking... It's so weird. But you're all good, though, Ken. That's your, that, you know, I mean, as a person, like, you know, you but, don't really... But I'm just, I'm talking about, like, the reaction of anybody in that situation. You you score a 3-2 goal like that in a game which has been really, you know, back and forth, and a huge game for both teams. And it's your first goal, your first league goal of the season, mm-hmm. right? And it's probably going to be the winning goal. Um how do you not smile? And someone said, a load of people actually, maybe Balotelli has said something like this himself, I'm not sure. But, you know, does the postman smile when he delivers letters? Yeah, that was Balotelli. But yeah. the point is, right, if the postman was delivering a really important letter, being watched by a crowd of 45,000 people, <laughs> you know, and, and he eventually, after battling for 85 minutes, managed to evade the dogs and, like, dunk the letter through the letterbox, <laughs> and everyone went completely nuts. Yes, I think the postman <laughs> would but what smile if, but what and about, cheer and run around. But it's what like, about the, what if the 45,000 people 
people that were watching him dodge dogs had spent three or four months telling him that he was a terrible postman. Well, this he is was the- one of the worst postmen. Like, uh, whatever unposter paying this postman is this a guy's joke. too much. It's an absolute postman joke. Has no the idea. guy's a disgrace to the postman profession. Well, that seems to be what was going through Balotelli's head. And it's not, not the first time that's I've an, seen him an, do that. He posted then on Instagram later on. He said, look, here's a smile. But this smile is only for the ones who believed in me and trusted me all along. It's, a, it's actually, it's not for any of the doubters. When he was scoring that goal and he was kind of, you know, he, he, he does at least puff his chest up a little bit as he walks away. And uh, he's going, you know, that one is... Ramming the words of my critic standards, throats. <laughs> you're like, you're gonna have to score a few more goals than that before you can ram down any words of, yeah. you know, you know. What I actually thought was really weird was so he runs off to Adam Lalana, and Lalana like can't. He feels he can't celebrate now either. Yeah. Exactly. So it's just like this, like kind of pat in the head. And, That's true. Actually. Like it doesn't like. You know, just because he's grumpy doesn't mean you have to yeah, let him in. He, like, he just wrecks everyone's buzz, Murph. Yeah. Brings the whole thing down. The, he's whole, a buzz kid. the whole team kind of loved him. They were trying to, you know, communicate a sense of happiness. But Balotelli seemed to be wanting to settle scores. You're going to have to score more goals than that. I mean, I, I remember in Euro 2012, remember the goal he scored against Ireland? Mm-hmm. And do you remember what he did then? No. He'd been criticised, remember, in the, in the lead of the. Italian media were criticizing him for you know being useless. Mm. Balotelli doesn't do anything in the game. Why are we playing him? There's stuff like that. Uh, he scored a goal against Ireland, which was you know a corner. He kind of volleyed it in yeah, quite nice cutely. Then he got up and started screaming. And it was I can't remember which teammate it was. Montalivo maybe is there behind him, sort of covering, actually covered his mouth with his hand to stop the cameras picking up whatever it was Balotelli was saying. <laughs> oh, yeah. Balotelli was essentially telling everyone to, you know, where to go mm. because, look, I've just scored this goal. <laughs> again, it was like a like a poaching, a poacher's goal. You know, like no contribution again to the general play in in the match from him. But, it, but he scores a poacher's goal from, from six yards, same as he did the other night. And suddenly he thinks he's got he's got a legitimate basis to tell everyone where to go. He doesn't, you know. This it's ridiculous. He needs to do. It. He should have he should have scored his first goal six months ago. You know, the fact that he's waited till now is still a disgrace. Maybe if he scores between now, you know, every game between now and the end of the season, then he's got it. Then he's got the opportunity to do a Samir Nasri. You can't say nothing about me. That Ireland Italy game in Euro twenty twelve had been consigned to the very back recesses of my memory until you brought it up there I can remember the Croatia game very well because I was at it Uh, I can remember the Spain game very well because it was just one of the most depressing sporting events you've ever well no the Italy game is probably more depressing you know in just just the the, the build up to everything around it was depressing at least the Spain game you had this faint hope that Ireland could do something and you knew you were watching this team which would go down in history so you you had a few bits of consolation whereas by the time the the Italy came I I, I had forgotten the Balotelli goal I can't remember the other goal that Italy scored right now Um, I'm sure people we we should probably think about it I was there and I'm struggling (laughs) now was it a corner was it a corner? Was it Cassandra? Either no, way, a riveting is... radio. <laughs> Christ. Yeah. We'll, uh, yeah. we'll think about this off air. It's probably the, the best thing to do. Let's get into this Irish team selection for the game against France on Saturday. Here's Joe Schmidt today. He's being asked about the strict, well, essentially the strict game plan that the team has been given up to now in his tenure in just about every match and whether the fact that the players, a few of the big name players are back means they might be able to go off script a little bit now. If they see that there's time and space and, and they think a, a, an opportunity, then I, I think that's a really important part of the game. It's an important part of us keeping tempo in the game and keeping our opponents guessing. Um, and, and I think, to a degree, it's, it encourages players' enjoyment of the game. They like the, the, the risk-takers. They, the, they like to get out and, um, and, and try to match up and see what they can do to be inventive and, and to encourage a game that's, that's um, you know, something that they enjoy. Yeah, sounds promising. We're going full barbarian style for, for this one. Joe, no game plan, Joe Schmidt says in this one. Just, just, ha- just hand the ball to Zebo out in the wing there and bow and see what they can see. What, what they can, can I say? We're better than them. So let's just go out and play some rugby. <laughs> All right, Simon's popped over. Simon's right. And Jerry Thorny. How is you Jerry, how are you? Uh, I suppose we'll start with... Well, the, the overall team, just looking at the 22 here, Jerry, the 23, as it is these days, is there's, um, well, there are fitness concerns over quite a few players. Uh, Jamie Heath, that I mentioned, uh, Sean O'Brien. You've got Kean Healy on the bench, coming back from his fairly serious hamstring injury and having played very little rugby. And Rory Best had the, the concussion last week, so they've obviously gone through the Sexton, the obviously, come back 12 Sexton, I totally forgot about Sexton coming yeah. back, having not played much uh, because of his concussions. Uh, is 
is there a riskier element than usual to the look of this Joe Schmidt team? Well, he's going with the strongest selection. It's one of the strongest selections he's ever had. I mean, he's welcoming back three Lions test winners. Oh, yeah, the names, winners. the names look great. I mean, the, change, the three changes have added up another 113 caps to the starting lineup for the, yeah. for the players they come in for. So it's a much more experienced side. It's a much more knowledgeable side. It's a much more of a winning side. Um, you know, there's Rob Carney, Tommy Bowe, Johnny Sexton, Connor Murray, Jamie Heasup, Sean O'Brien, Paul O'Connell. They all played in the Lions Test Series. So that's a really strong looking side with a str- really strong experienced spine. I think Sexton coming into the team, coming into any team, and maybe Jamie Heasup and Sean O'Brien as well, but certainly Johnny Sexton coming into any team improves it immeasurably. And that's no disrespect to any other Irish I'd have because he's the best in Europe never mind oh, yeah, probably the best in the world I'm not for a minute suggesting that you yeah. wouldn't necessarily no, no. Uh, put, put sex in but there seems to be a lot of players in, in the same lacking game time. here lacking game time lacking game time for sure for sure for sure and that's why Ireland are going to get progressively better as this Six Nations progresses than worse you would have thought because some of these key men are going to get more and more game time uh, as a result of this yeah. so the, this this is a tricky one they get over it they get better and then you know two weeks on they're better again against England they will get stronger as the tournament progresses because of this Yeah, I put them in slightly different categories those players that you mentioned. Jamie Heaslip was training last week and he probably, if it was anybody besides Joe Schmidt, he would have played that game. If it had been England or France and a title decider, I'm sure Jamie would have yeah, played. Yeah, right. just You're Joe right. doesn't yeah. play somebody if yeah. they missed a couple of training sessions that week and Jamie being Jamie, you expect him to come straight back to form. Sexton has known he's coming back for, to this date for quite a long time and has been able to train fully physically. Um, so it's really Sean O'Brien. Well, Keenan Healy on the bench as well, we don't know. But um, it's really Sean O'Brien is the... It was such a strange injury. I don't know if you were watching it, uh, the injury in the warm-up. Absolutely nothing happened. He just went to ground and kind of lay on his shoulder and then a twinge. But yet he was able to train fully two days later. Yeah. Hamstring train, a twinge, yeah. Hamstring, yeah. sorry, yeah. Yeah, minor one. It's one of the yeah. strangest... It is, isn't it? ...to train fully two days later yeah. and then be absolutely clear to yeah. start against the French. Yeah, and it's tough on Tommy O'Donnell. I mean, he was outstanding at the breakdown. He was Ireland's second highest tackler. He was really good clearing out. Um, might have got a poach or two from a different referee in another day, but and then rounds it off with a superb try. And he doesn't even make the 23 because... Well, I've always thought Joe Schmidt has a slight preference for Jordy Murphy over Tommy O'Donnell. And also, of course, you can argue that Jordy Murphy can cover more positions. You make a really good point about Johnny Saxon. Ironically, had he been playing with Racing Metro, he wouldn't have had three weeks uninterrupted preparation yeah. with Team Ireland for this match. Yeah. He'd have had a game for Racing Metro, been travelling back and forth between the two. His problem might not be so much this weekend. I mean, Johnny Sexton's got a history of hitting the ground running. His very first start for Joe Schmidt it was against Racing Metro in 10-11 when it was, I think it was the, the, the fifth match of the season or sixth match of the season. He played a little bit of a cameo the week before against Munster and he guided Leinster to a handsome win, I think 38-22 over Racing Metro, ironically enough. So maybe that's a good omen for the weekend. His problem might actually be, Simon, as the Six Nations progresses because Racing Metro are going to want him to play in the two off weeks. So if that comes to pass... This Saturday will be the first of six consecutive games not having played for 12 weeks. And that could, you know, impose on him, you know, could strain, put a strain on his body. I mean, but it, so you're right, they're different categories these players are coming and, back And Sean O'Brien, I'd actually, I'd be in some ways less worried about the, the hamstring tweak that he had last week than I would be about the lack of rugby that he's had over such a long period. I know Ron O'Gara was talking about this after the game, Jerry, on RTE last week, and he said, look, you actually have to treat Sean O'Brien differently to other players. He's built differently, he's a, he's a physical freak. And, and O'Gara thinks he might actually be returning better, physically stronger than he was before he had the injuries. But and I bow to O'Gara's superior knowledge of that one. But it, it concerns me a bit thinking about a player in that way, given that if he's such a physical freak and so durable, how do you explain the the uh, couple of injuries he's had around the shoulder and the ankle problem he's had as well? Yeah, it's, it is a concern, and you're right, because the proof will only be in the pudding. And if this happens again, then all the concerns will be valid. And it's a wait-and-see job. But you have to think that, generally speaking, under Jason Cameron's watch, the Irish fitness director, the fitness coach, you know, these kind of things don't tend to happen. And players come back at the right time, and players come back very fit and perform at a very high level. There are really those kind of issues under his watch. Sure, there aren't. Yeah, no, it's been a, like a really good record over the last yeah. little while. And Joe has very specific requirements and needs from a player in the week in the build-up. And you just know they've all ticked every box. Yes. You know, something freakish can still happen like happened Sean O'Brien last week, but you know all the, all the risk factors have been taken out. What does Sean O'Brien, um, I was going to say, what does he bring? Specifically in terms of the game plan and Keane Healy back on the bench there, we've... we've it's skirted around it for a while that maybe Joe Schmidt can be a little bit more the options open up when you have those kind of ball carriers involved for sure I and mean, Jamie he's up to an extent as well because he's lip 
his stock seems to have gone up in the couple of weeks he's been away everybody yeah. starts realising what it is that actually Jamie yeah. Esop does yeah well he never makes a mistake for starters his workload is tremendous he plays 80 minutes generally I mean it's curious that in the last three games Valencia didn't play 80 minutes it suggests that maybe he shouldn't have started all three of the, the games because I don't remember ever Jamie Esop not playing two matches in a run certainly not three um, so I would think that he'll the main thing that Sean O'Brien and Keane Healy will bring would be more um, ballast with ball in hand. And Ireland got caught behind the game line a fair bit against the Italians, who played a very aggressive defence, for sure. But apart from Robbie Henshaw, I think Henshaw got Ireland over the game line 10 times out of 14 carries or so, which was just freakish. Mm. Phenomenal performance from Robbie Henshaw. I mean, I thought he was a valid contender for man of the match, along with O'Donnell and Murray as well. Yeah, and Henshaw was phenomenal. When the game phenomenal. was tight, he, Henshaw was the, the one, one guy getting across yeah, the game line. Yeah. And he was doing it through different means, through power, through footwork, or whatever it might take. Whereas a lot of people were just getting stopped at that point. Yeah. And, and when the game opened up, a lot of people can look good in any game. Yes. But it's actually the guys when you really need them. And the French game is going to be like that for 80 minutes. Absolutely. So Henshaw is going to get a lot of balls. And he also made some really good defensive reads. Ireland did have to do some defending in that game. There was one covering one that he read really well. He pushed up off the line occasionally as well and made his tackles. He's become, I mean, considering it was only his third ever match at number mm. 12, per se. Yeah. <laughs> and know? there was this assumption, oh, Robbie Henshaw is now the first name on the sheet yes. in the back line, maybe. And he's only here a few weeks, effectively, <laughs> you know. That was a Six Nations debut. We yeah. forget this. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But um, I think what, what O'Brien will do, you can move him a little bit further away. He doesn't have to be a one-off carrier all the time. And he might. He, he's more likely to get Ireland over the game line, maybe, than a lot of the other carriers. And I think that's going to be important. You know, Ireland have lost Darcy and O'Driscoll now. And they wondrous dancing feet. And there isn't an awful lot of footwork in that team, Simon. Sure, there isn't. Yeah. You'd like to see a Keith Earls on the bench, maybe, for that reason or something, just to give them a little bit extra footwork. There's a lot of good straight runners. Um, and O'Brien is a, <laughs> as good a straight runner as there is in the world. But he, if he gets Ireland over the game line, so many more possibilities than if you're being stopped from behind the game line, aren't there? Yeah. That's yeah. where he comes in. Yeah, yeah, we, were, we were going to maybe talk about the bench. Last week, you thought it might be one of our most explosive ever. It didn't come to pass. But with Sean Cronin, Keane Healy and Marty Moore as a replacement front row, that might be our most explosive ever to come on in a For game. Sure. Um, and it For might sure. be needed given what's on the French bench. And then Ian Henderson, Jordy Murphy. But then in the back line, it's maybe a little more disappointing. Jerry, well, certainly you would have thought that Owen Redden would quicken the game up a tempo. That's that's generally what he's brought on to do when he mm. brought on for Isaac Boss, for example, at mm. Leinster level to quicken the tempo up. And would you'd like a scrum half that would quicken the game up or Marmion? It just looks as if that entirely comes down to the Wolf and Saxons match, doesn't it? That you know Marmion effectively played himself out of the squad and Boss played himself in. Yeah in spite of a yeah. really good season for Connick. Yeah, and I agree. I think Keith Earls has been in phenomenal form. I would have thought he covers as much as Felix Jones in the sense that he has played full-back brilliantly once for Ireland against England yeah. at, at home, and he has played wing and he has played centre, so he covers as many positions as Jones. He looked more, more positions. in actual fact, and he's, more of an, he's got more of an X-factor. I still think, in terms of beating a player one-on-one, Keith Earls probably is better than anybody else in Irish rugby, just through his footwork, his ability to beat a player one-on-one. And it would be nice to have that X-factor off of the bench. But who are we to, to question Joe Schmidt? I mean, he gets his... his apart from everything else, not only does he come up with the perfect game plan for every match and is perfectly executed, but he's a very good selector. I mean, you know, mm. the, Mike, the Mike Ross selection was entirely vindicated in my book by Ross's, Ross's phenomenal work yeah. rate around the pitch and the scrummaging. And so was that of Ian Keekley. If you look back at it, I mean, it was Ian Keekley's long kicking, I think, that got him in ahead of Ian Madigan. And it was the long kicking that led to one of his own three first half penalties. And it was his long kick that led to the three mauls that had culminated in the try and the yellow card, which eventually settled the game. And I think, you know, by and large, Keekley kicked all his goals and grew into the match. And, and he just tends to get his selections right. You mentioned some of the the Irish front row replacements, Simon. And it, it is an important part of the, the team always to analyse, given that. Y- you can kind of forget about who's on the bench sometimes and then with 20 minutes to go, this, is, this can decide games, who's yeah. winning, who's dominating mm. who in the scrum. Mm. France have some monsters there on the bench and interestingly, Saint-André said mm. yesterday that the reason that Debati is back on the bench for this one and back in contention is because he did really well against Marty Moore last year in Paris. So specifically, coaches are now lining up their substitute front rows, their substitute props against the, the substitute props they know will come on for the other team. And France seemed to fancy their chances in that department. Yeah, I think um, I interviewed Marty Moore just before the start of the Six Nations and uh, he revealed to me that that shoulder injury that ruined, ruled him out of the summer tour, he picked up in the preceding game against Italy when he came off the bench and he was actually in a bit of pain against France that day. It certainly could have been a very costly end, end game. I'm convinced Steve Walsh at one point was about... I actually think his hand did flick out to signal a penalty. Yeah. As that French scrum steamrolled the Irish scrum. Yeah. And the ball thankfully squirted out on the French side. Otherwise, 
Jean-Marc Doucin might have had a kick from in front of the post to derail Ireland by a point and deny Ireland a Six Nations title. So, yeah, they're looking back on that. But Dabadi, um hasn't played a whole lot of rugby, I don't think, much lately anyway. And I think Moore is a stronger player now than he was a year ago. And I wouldn't be anyway as worried about that. And the very fact that... Um, Sant Andreas come out on record as saying, you know, they're going to target Sexton and they're going to target Marty Moore with Tabati and these things, will only make them more aware of this. And I would have thought Marty Moore would be fine. I don't think it'll be as big a problem. I don't think there's any injury concerns there about Moore. Just one thing on the subs and maybe them getting as much of a mention these days almost as the starting 15 is that rugby games, particularly when you know it's, say, Ireland, France, Ireland, England, and it's going to be tight, the last 15, 20 minutes are almost like a, a different game within the game where mm. all the players mentally switch to another gear. It's a different type of rugby. It's more cautious. And then the subs do come on. So there's uh, less structure, but there's more explosive ball carriers and people are tiring. So there's, you've got the first 60 where quite often they're teasing each other out. Mm. And then the tactics and the players and everything changes in the last 20 minutes. And you could see that last Saturday, couldn't you? As soon as that first try went in, right, Madigan comes in yeah. and he changes up and they go wide and they put more pace in the ball in nine phases. And his, it's his pass that gives O'Donnell a bit of the sighting in the gap against 14 men, admittedly with Castro Giovanni there. And he gets past him and then he's got one-on-one with Andrea Massi yeah. who played the whole match on one leg. Yeah. One leg he played. I don't know yeah. what he was doing on the pitch. Yeah. The poor fella. I mean, it must be his worst ever international. I don't think there'll be that soft touches in the French defence. I think they'll be very aggressive and I think they'll try and do a number in Ireland physically and really push up aggressively and they'll put a lot of power into their game. But I, I, I agree with you. I think they'll have to come high tempo stages and Ireland will want that. If you think back to Paris last year, Simon, when Bastro went for an offload, a really good risky offload, but it would have been interesting if it had come off in the R22 early in the second half. Carney rang back the turnover they recycled and their immediate reaction was to go wide because as Isley have shown the year before as well this French team um, they have a big juggernaut pack but it's a bit of a one pace pack and if the ball is in play for three four minutes and they turn over the ball that is the best time to attack them from anywhere in the pitch and if you remember it led to Trimble making the breakout he might have put O'Driscoll in mm. recycled Sexton scored himself and that was the winning of the title and I think you'll see Ireland do that again this Saturday if they get the chance to do San- it Saint-André has named uh, almost identical team to last week one change in mm. the front row there Jerry, mm. which indicates uh, maybe a, a confidence in his 15 or a, a realisation himself that he has has to, at this stage in a World Cup year, maybe he has to settle on the 15 he's got. Yeah, there, there was talk of Slimani at tight head, Cockett at scrum half, and Scott Spedding the fullback all being under pressure for their places. But if you're going to give these guys a chance, you have to give them a couple of games. And I think there's very much a sense in France that this is a block of three weeks, that the squad has been unchanged for three weeks and two matches, and all options are open after this match. There's a two-week break to their third match, and uh, he might well then decide to cut it all up start it all over again you wouldn't know um, there are a lot of good players in that French team you know they look, you look at them on paper and they're very dangerous and you look at how Clermont and Toulon have gone against the Irish province in the last three years yep. you think back to how few times Ireland have beaten France I think last year was the first time in seven years you know the previous two games were draws last year was only two points you wonder why Ireland are six point favourites I don't think Ireland have ever been six point favourites <laughs> against France it's decidedly unnerving and yet you would have to think this is not a very well-coached French side. It didn't look well-coached last weekend. They looked like they'd played two different game plans and two different halves. They've won three away matches in St. Andre's entire three-year tenure, two of them in Murrayfield and one against an understrength Pumas. So, yeah, it will be very interesting. They're, they must know they're getting one more last shot at this. I suppose the pressure's off them to a little bit of a degree. They're not expected to win and they might swing from the hip and that might make them dangerous. Will that be enough to win, predictions-wise? Um... I'd be surprised and disappointed if this vastly superior coached Irish team don't make home advantage to Ireland beat okay. France. Yeah, so Ireland, not, not great value, but they should actually... Exactly. I wouldn't be, wouldn't be Wayne put, thrown in a mortgage at minus six, no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in spite of all those players just coming back from long spells off the field, it's still, when you like you say, when you look at the names, it's incredible that the, how well it's come together for Joe Schmidt relative to how it's been for Munster, Ulster and Leinster in particular, like all the big names back. Um the one concern being that France put in maybe their best performance ever under Saint-André in last year's Six Nations. I don't know whether that was a better game plan, Jerry, or whether they were just more intense on the day and it was the final game of the Six Nations, but well, that's what would make me worry. They definitely played with more freedom that day. And mm. talking to French journalists, you're, you're right, Simon, all the French journalists, that's the best performance under Saint-André, particularly the second half. They just seemed to be liberated and play with freedom. It was... It was the whole criticism they were getting from their own media, from their own public, and it just hemmed them into a corner. And that's the thing, as Alan Quinn was saying during the week, 
not only does the rest of the world believe in France's unpredictability, but they believe in it themselves. Yeah. Therefore, form doesn't matter. They know they can just turn up. They can lose to Tonga in a World Cup yeah. and come out and beat England in a quarterfinal. Yeah. They can beat the All Blacks in a World Cup and a week later lose at home to a, a pretty mundane English side. There isn't... They are the most unpredictable side in the world. And there is that danger that they will swing from the hip and be liberated. And, you know, they get Fafana and Bastro and Uge and these guys. I mean, they've a lot of very dangerous players. And they've got a good controlling number 10. I just think that after half an hour or so each half, I think they'll, they, they've tended to concede a lot of points towards the end of the first half of games. They conceded a try against Scotland last week. They conceded one against Australia in the autumn. Ten points they conceded in the last ten minutes of the first half. Their pack tends to run out of steam after about half an hour or so. And I just think Ireland will have more tempo and more pace their game at key moments to make home advantage tell. Simon, your prediction? Yeah, Ireland by uh, three, four points. Three, yeah. four points. All right. Lads, great stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. An update for you on Andy Lee's first world title defence. Now, this is a story that's swung back and forth a little bit. Andy had been hoping to take part in a big money fight in the US against the undefeated Peter Quillen. That plan looked to be in jeopardy. Lee faced a mandatory defence against the British fighter Biddy Joe Saunders. And Saunders' promoter Frank Warren was playing a little bit of hardball, I think. A deal has been struck now, though. So Saunders steps aside, gets a little bit of cash to step aside, and then waits to fight the winner of the Lee Quinnan fight. Pretty good deal for Billy Joe Saunders, if you ask me, but it's good for Andy as well, because now he has told us that the fight against Quillen is good to go and will happen on April the 11th in Brooklyn. That's Quillen's hometown. It's going to be on NBC, which is huge in and of itself. NBC back involved in the in the boxing game. Terrestrial t- TV. Terrestrial TV. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Which is a huge... Quillen's background, right? He vacated the belt that uh, rather than fight Matt Karaboff, this is the title that Lee now holds. Lee ended up stepping in and fighting Karaboff. That sounds in the face of it not great. It sounds like he was afraid to fight him and I've certainly seen that mentioned quite a bit in uh, bits I've read on Twitter that, uh, well, you don't have to worry about this guy, he was afraid to fight Karaboff. The truth seems to be, you never know in boxing, but what's what's being said now over the last few days is that the, there was a the usual sort of political manoeuvrings at the centre of him vacating that belt. Rock Nation Sports is a promotional company owned by Jay-Z. They unexpectedly won the purse bids to stage that fight, to stage the Karaboff-Quillen fight. And Quillen's promoter, Al Heyman, didn't, essentially didn't want Jay-Z to get too much of a foothold in boxing as he wanted to protect his own patch. So advised his client to not take that fight. So he relinquished the belt. Heyman has since done a big promotional deal that we mentioned with NBC on Terrestrial TV. And now, of course, he and his fighter are ready to fight for the world title. And Macy Andy Lee is a better route to actually go down anyway. It could, it could work out that they see this as uh, maybe a good thing for them, but uh, hopefully they'll be underestimating Lee if that's the case. We've been watching, uh, scrubbing up on our Peter Kid Chocolate Quill and Knowledge mm. Murph, uh, watching a 30 for 30 short, which was very entertaining. And it turns out that unfortunately, unforgivably in fact, uh, I would go so far as to say, uh, this guy's a really, really likeable character. <laughs> you liked him a lot more so than So literally of any other boxing division, uh, and even heck... Any other world title, I would be nothing would make me happier than to see uh, Kid Chocolate do the business because uh, there is a eight minute or so uh, short documentary uh, released on Grantland, really easy to find. Just uh, enter Peter Quill and Kid Chocolate into YouTube and you'll see it. And um, yeah, amazing background. Uh, you know, God, nearly typical of your your typical boxer background. Yeah, it's got all the ingredients in in quite an extreme form of the boxer, the inner city, uh, you know, tough kind of black neighborhood yeah, growing up, all, in, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Dad in prison, uh, keynote moment at eighteen or nineteen when a boxer makes life changing decision that looks like it's not a very good idea and then turns out to be a good idea. In Kid Chocolate's case, a move out of his home city in Michigan uh, to sleeping on dirty mattresses and out in the streets in New York City and um, working from there to become uh, WBO heavyweight or middleweight champion of the world. Um, So, yeah, seems like a really nice guy. But let's hope uh, 
Andy Lee goes in there and uh, <laughs> takes away his dreams, destroys this guy, everything yeah. this guy has worked for. That's what boxing is all about. We'll tweet a uh, link to that uh, that thirty for thirty short on. Uh, if you follow us at Second Captains there. Uh, while we were on that, I, I, we ended up, both myself and Murphy yesterday, we've sent this on to you, Ken. I hope you've had a chance to watch it. And for no particular reason, we just decided to spend a few minutes watching a couple of the... Well, I was I was watching No Math, uh, one of the ah, longer 30-30s, okay. okay. uh, about the Duran-Sugar Ray Leonard ah. fight, and peaked, it piqued my interest in mid 1980s So we watched the famous Hagler-Hearns fight. This formed the centrepiece of George Kimball's brilliant Four Kings book, the three-round war between... Thomas Hagler, uh, Thomas uh, the Hitman Hearns, Marvin say, Hagler, and marvelous Marvin Hagler. You were quite uh, quite taken by this. Uh, yeah, <laughs> one of the most famous fights in history. I've never never saw it before today. If you were if you were training or watching. advising the much taller, uh, much more highly technical uh, Marvin Hagler, uh, Tommy Hearns, I should say, yeah. would you advise against a slightly different strategy? Because the strategy both men took was to literally throw. Knockout punches from the first bell. By the end of the first round, it looked like they fought 12 rounds. I Maybe just, use that jab a little I bit I wonder more. what happened to Marvin Hagler in the end. Because I've never seen such an aggressive uh, fighter. So I can't remember. I mean, he keeps getting hit in the face. And there's blood pouring out all over his head. That's fine. That's and fine. He's just completely keep undaunted. Just keeps advancing. And swinging punches completely regardless of his own uh, physical safety. Mm. And nothing appears to ha- make any impact on him. So that's pretty scary, yeah. mm. I would have thought. I mean, I, I was watching fight, and after the first round, I thought, Hearns is going to win this. I think I tell, you know, Hearns is going to win this. This guy, Hagler, he can't possibly keep up what he's doing. <laughs> Hearns is hitting him with too many shots. You know, look at him, he's covered in blood. Yeah, There's well, no see, way. That was exactly it. I mean, Hagler couldn't keep it up for any longer than probably four rounds. Yeah. But that was part of the plan. Just within the four rounds. Knock the guy out uh, before it got to the fourth round. All right. Now, Tiger Woods has uh, a quick reminder, actually, while I think of it, if you're looking to come along to the live show on Monday week, the Irish Times Second Captain Sports Night with Rabo Direct, just check out irishtimes.com forward slash second captains. Tiger Woods, this is his statement today. Uh, If you're not aware of this, he's taking a break from golf. And indefinite sounds a bit dramatic, as though he's going to take a year or two off again. I I don't know if it's going to be that. But he says, the last two weeks have been very disappointing to me, especially Tory. That's Tory Pines, where he had to pull out last weekend, because I never want to withdraw. Unfortunately, lately injuries have made that happen too often. This latest injury is not related to my previous surgery. I'm having daily physical therapy, and I'm feeling better every day. Right now, I need a lot of work on my game and to still spend time with the people that are important to me. My play and scores are not acceptable for tournament golf. Like I've said, I enter a tournament to compete at the highest level and when I think I'm ready, I'll be back. Next week, I will practice at Medalist and at home getting ready for the rest of the year. I'm committed to getting back to the pinnacle of my game. I'd like to play the Honda Classic. That's at the end of February. It's a tournament in my hometown and it's important to me, but I won't be there unless my game is tournament ready. That's not fair to anyone. I do, however, expect to be playing again very soon and then he goes on to thank the fans in the uh, last couple of tournaments for, for being amazing to him Malachi Clerken has popped in Malachi how are you? I'm good on. Uh, and I guess we might hold to this when do you think Tiger Woods how long is this self-imposed uh, exile going to last? I can't even begin to estimate Yeah although at the same time I can't see him not playing the Masters Yeah um, Which you know isn't that far away I guess it's Eight weeks, there thereabouts, sort of second week of uh, April. So, I, I, yeah, certainly can't see him not playing the Masters. It's um, it's 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 surprising news in some ways. But you were watching him mm. at Tory Pines, and, and maybe you can outline what you were watching and uh, how likely you thought at the time that it is that this guy maybe needs a bit of a break. Well, he certainly looked like a guy in need of a break. He he looked like what I found. A bit inter- interesting about it is that um, even now, you know, we watch Tiger differently than we watch other golfers. Um, the the way he was playing and the, just the, the his attitude, he, he really did not care. Uh, he, he, he was playing uh, a round of golf that he just really didn't give a damn about. You could see it in him now. He was in obvious physical discomfort. Uh, Billy Horschel was playing with him and picked up his tee a couple of times and picked the ball out of the hole for him a few times. But um, I was really struck by he he, he stopped trying. You know, he, he there was one chip that he put. Uh, he, he duffed a chip uh, off the back of one of the greens. It was about two, two holes before he walked in. Uh, 
he duffed a chip, which is, you know, it's always fun to see a professional golfer duff a chip, you know, uh, for those of us who struggle with the game. Um, but he then went and, uh, and did exactly what those of us who struggle with the game do when the game is really annoying you. Uh, you duff a chip and then you just walk up to it and hit it without, you know, trying to, to get it right, without talking to the caddy, without kind of standing over. He just went up to it and hit it and kind of bladed it through the green and took two putts to get down. I think it was a double bogey. Um you can't scratch holes when you're No, exactly. Golfer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he he ab- felt, we felt the need to tell Tiger. He 100% looked like a fella who was would be going go on lads. I'll just pick up here. Yeah. I'll see us at the next tee kind of thing. But so I mean it just it's it's interesting so that you talk about um his back problems and the fact that Billy Horschel mm. had to pick up his tee, but also that like that that is not injury. Is that injury related no, in your he, mind, or is that uh, no? Because that that, that's, that's that's what I'm saying. I, I I think that's the more interesting side of it. Is that um, whatever? But like the guy won a major on a broken leg. You know, we always have to remember that on this on that very course where he was doing this the other day. Um, he, if you didn't know better, I mean, it, I kind of thought I was looking at him going, if this was Miguel Angel Jimenez or. Ernie Els or some of these guys, you go, well, that guy's just going to retire soon, you know. But the you can't really think of golf without Tiger Woods. I do. I, it's like you go onto the PGA Tour website today. Just type in pgatour.com. The first photograph that hits you, bigger than everybody else's, is the 68th ranked golfer in the world who hasn't won a tournament in two years. Yeah. Well, well, and down beside him is uh, in a, 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 a picture a quarter the size is Rory McIlroy, the best golfer in the world, uh, who has uh, finished in the top two in his last eight tournaments. <laughs> What's interesting, I think, the, and the way you describe him giving up there, is that Rory McIlroy has done that, uh, not so much mm-hmm. recently, but in, in the past, uh, as a young golfer, and the relatively recent past, he's played some rounds, and you've just seen him, and you, you've, you've thought, he doesn't want to be out there. Yeah. He's got no interest un- unless he can uh, really have a stab at winning this thing, and that's... and he's been good enough that he can actually afford to have that uh, attitude because he has been in contention and he has pulled it off a lot of the times when he's been in contention. Tiger used to actually uh, almost never give up. He never missed cuts. He never, he might be, say, struggling to get into the top 20 at a major and you'd still see him grinding out this 69, 70, 71 final round. So if that's disappeared from, if the fight is gone from him, you'd have to think, what's he, what's he going to for? That's the interesting thing and, it's funny. I I I remembered there was there was a, a great story in um, Hank Haney's book, uh, whenever that was, two three years ago. About it was actually about a, a Tory Pines tournament uh, in two thousand and five. I think Tiger had just got married um, to Ellen Norgren, um, and this was his first win as a married man, I'm pretty sure. Um, and it had been a really long final day. I think they had to play 30 holes in the final day because there was rain and all this kind of stuff. But he won the tournament. And uh, Haney was walking beside Tiger and his new bride. And she was really kind of buzzy because this was this was her first tournament as a married woman with him. And he'd won. And she's... And, her history, of course, was that she was Jesper Parnovic's nanny. And so she, she was really, she wanted to go out. She wanted to throw a party. She wanted to do something. She, and she said, when Jesper won, we always had a big party. And Tiger cut her off straight away and said, I'm not Jesper. We don't do that. We're supposed to win. This, now. No, disres- from, no disrespect to Jesper Parnovic. No disrespect, <laughs> but, but exactly. But, and, and, you know, there's a slightly psychotic nature of yeah. the man. But that guy seems to be gone, you know, that that guy who, who entered tournaments to win, who just could not uh, conceive of, even like didn't even really seem to take much joy out of winning just because that was what had to happen. Um, and that inexorable... I mean, he's done. Like He has to actually retire. And then maybe after a year, 18 months, he might suddenly start to think, you know, I could still give it a crack. He might be able to have another couple of good years, but he's he's done. He's got to get away from it. Exactly. You're you're exactly right in every circumstance except two. One, this is golf, where golfers people don't retire. Mm. You know, 
they fall off the radar for a while. They maybe lose their playing privileges, although Tiger will be able to, for no matter how bad it gets, will be able to play in whatever tournaments outside the, the, the majors and WGCs he wants because sponsors will always be delighted to have him there. But the uh, the other thing is that... that this is this is this guy's life. Like there's mm. there's nothing else to but it's, him. It, it's fa- it's falling apart. Like he needs to get away from it. He needs to. But he has been away it, from it, Ken. Like he's been. He he's he's spent an awful yeah. lot of the last two years injured. Like you know he's he he has withdrawn from eight tournaments in his career and six of them have been in the last four years. You know? I think it's, I think what Ken is saying is that he has to he needs to give up in his head yeah. Yeah. and say I can't play golf anymore mm. and then his allow his body. To, even if it's even if it's uh, at a level of consciousness that he's willing to accept, it's like I'm retired now because I've had to retire because of injury. Rest his body and then come back. But mm. nothing that you've seen in Tiger Woods in his career in his life would lead you to suggest that he's going to say, you know, golf, my body's beating me here. You know, I just I need to retire. But it's not it's not his body. I mean, it seems to me that yeah. that whatever's happened in his career, it does seem to have coincided with certain problems in his personal yeah. life. Well, I mean, well, you, the, the retirement is an acknowledgement of the injuries and he has to deal, he 100% has to deal as much with this. Ken is right though, Morfaga. I mean, the, the injuries, I would argue, are, are to a certain extent a bit of a smokescreen. Um, his his game has gone to pot. Yeah, you no, know, and I, I actually you know, agree with that as well. And I, like, you know, even when when he was the the, the best sportsman on the planet, uh, he was still uh, he was still never a magnificent driver of the ball. You know, the the ball all you know he always saved himself through through the rest of his game. But the rest of his game is, is, is seems to be gone. You know, and and if he can't get his short game back, you know, you can't you can't compete on tour. I mean, he's he's already you know he's not he's not eligible to play in the WGCs. It's mm. ridiculous to think of that, yeah. you know? I mean, he spoke after the the 82 he shot in Arizona. He didn't even seem that annoyed, you know? Mm. It's, which is, that's the crazy thing, you know? And you kind of spoke about that, that the relentless, relentlessness on where he never missed a cut and then mm. he would always grant. Like, that actually had an impact on everyone else. Like, how many times did you sit down and watch a golf tournament and Tiger is 11 shots behind the, the leader and he hits three birdies in the first six holes or something and yeah. there's like a ripple goes through the TV coverage all of the players Tiger's uh, on a charge uh, here like he's, got three, you, he's got eight shots back you know like the guy's dead I'll know? tell you better than that Murph I, I was at uh, the Masters in 2000 and I can't remember was it was a 10 or 11 I was at two of them and, and I th- oh no it was 9 or 10 so I think it was 10 and himself and Mickelson started the day I think eight shots off the, off the pace and at Augusta there are no digital scoreboards you're not it's the one golf tournament you're not allowed to kind of walk around with your phone kind of mm-hmm. quietly updating you can't even have a radio you know to say you know but all you could hear are these cheers from <laughs> from over on the third and from over on the fourth and you do know where they're all coming from and exactly like that they made a bit both of them made a big push to, uh, to get uh, they got to the turn about two shots off the lead and exactly like that the whole atmosphere of the place changed but you can't see that now but the point that was made about and you mentioned that he, golfers often they just keep playing for a start they still get very good prize money if they are anywhere near uh, mm-hmm. and, they, and they, in Tiger's case there's still a certain amount of endorsements that uh, you'd have there uh, that may be contingent on you being a, a professional golfer but Someone like David Duval was a spectacular example of somebody mm-hmm. who fell pretty quickly from grace. Tiger is so many levels above Duval in terms of his fame outside of golf that mm-hmm. he can't really just fall from grace under the radar. People are going to see these 82. Yeah. But like you're saying, people on a Friday night are going to be seeing his shots, are going to, no matter how badly. In fact, the worse he plays, the more screen oh, time he'll possibly have, which I would, I would have thought would make it difficult for a guy like that which with such pride in what he does. And the word embarrassment is one that Murphy used earlier on uh, just before we start having this conversation on air. Is Tiger really going to be able to stick coming back after these whatever amount of weeks away and going out and embarrassing himself again. He, he said something last week. It was a kind of a throwaway remark and look, nobody lies to the press more than Tiger Woods but he, he did let slip something along those lines that uh, I've got I've to fix a, a lot of stuff to fix uh, but the problem is I have to fix it in front of you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that's it's, it's, it's true and, and it obviously does kind of 
go to to some level of of his consciousness you know uh, uh, since he was whatever age he was yeah. he's lived lived his life in front of cameras and made his mistakes in front of cameras but there have been fewer mistakes or yeah fewer mistakes than there have been and, be- and before 2008 yeah. nobody was willing to highlight his mistakes nobody yeah. nobody was highlighting back then it's something we've talked about before nobody really talked about his on course demeanour or <laughs> whatever turned out to be going on away from the course and suddenly after it all came crashing down yeah. it, just the whole attitude towards Tiger there's there's much more of a willingness to criticise now uh, and people think maybe they can do it with a certain amount of impunity. Yeah, I think, I mean, golf is is really interesting because there's, like, there's such a, a, a generation of players that have come through now um, that, you know, aren't in any way afraid of them that arrive on tour. You, you see five or six of them at the start of every American golf season uh, you see these guys that arrive on tour straight out of college and they're just ready to win and they just don't give a damn about Tiger Woods. They're, they're more scared of Rory McIlroy. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the, Tiger Woods is, is like Jack Nicklaus to them. You know, it's he's somebody from, from bygone days. You know, he's a guy who hasn't won a major in seven years. Why would they be worried about him? Um, it would be, it's just going to be interesting to see whether he, he gets it back together. I thought it was interesting. There was a line in that, that statement about spending time with uh, the people close to him. Yeah. Uh, I did wonder, you know, uh, Lindsey Vaughn is in the middle of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's peak sort of uh, ski season now. Uh, I did wonder, was that a kind of a get that in there so that when he turns up wherever she is skiing this weekend and is photographed, uh, it kind of takes the heat off, you know, people would be kind of going, shouldn't this guy be working on his chipping? Yeah, what, what's yeah, he doing yeah. up the top of this mountain? You know, so I did think that Preemptive. that, that yeah. and maybe there's more to, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe he's getting more balance in his life. Maybe, maybe they, he's maybe, in love, Malachi. Maybe he is, you know, yeah, you know. Malachi, brilliant stuff as always. Thanks for right. Shane Curran with the kick out. The 42-year-old goalkeeper. Curran it out from goal. Here he comes. He topped it. He fought it. He's 50 yards out from goal. What a day for us coming. All the mother niggas lame and you know it now. When the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam. 1944 is the last time a senior tiger come out of here. And the one, 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 be the last one. Bam. What a day for us coming. Leave a pretty girl sad reputation. Start a fight club, Brad reputation. I asked the question, does anybody deserve to lose a dollar and come find it? Give me a tech 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 if you know the answer. It'll be heartbreak on either side. Imagine being eight up. Imagine coming from eight down. Shane Curran has been lifted by an umpire. The sub goalie. Two castle barmen. And a bridges mate. I can't see Curran continuing. It could be his last race out of all. That's almost it for this podcast. A couple of things to, a couple of loose ends to tie up though, Ken. One of them is the, <laughs> I'm sure people are waiting for with bated breath for this one, Ken, but who scored the non-Mario Balotelli goal against Ireland in Euro 2012? Did yeah, you, it was Antonio Cassano. Was, was, did you say Cassano earlier? Yeah. Did you reach for Cassano? Yeah. Um, I think there was a, there was a, a mistake by Shea Given. Well, there was definitely a mistake for the goal. Uh, it was a kind of a corner that, that was flicked in at the near post and given possibly should have done a bit better. I think he kind of spilled a shot just beforehand. So it was, it was a real, oh no, Shea Givens tournament just... I mean, it would be great if we were able to just remember Shea Given in Euro 2012 for that save from Javi. Oh yeah. You know the one I'm talking save, about? Yeah, what close range, point blank. What a, what a save that was. Mm-hmm. But we did end up as the worst ever performers in a European Championship with... Um, uh, no points and a goal difference of minus eight. So that's it's difficult. Yeah. To, it's difficult to. So now that that's done, let's never mention the Ireland Italy game from Euro 2012 again. And the other loose end that's high up is the Irish Times Second Happens Football Podcast, which is coming up later, and you have to promote that, please. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. So we're going to talk on about how much is too much? Is there such a thing as having too much money? Well, is there such a thing as eating too much food? <laughs> you could argue that yes, there is. 
uh, stuffing food into your mouth. I mean, I know that we are bags designed for, you know, stuffing food into and then, you know, mm. squirting it out. But is there a limit to the amount of food you can actually stuff into one of these food bags before it begins to become counterproductive? Lovely description of the human body there. Evocative, Ken. Is, uh, I mean, uh, maybe the... the the, the comparison doesn't exactly stand up between the human body and food and the Premier League and money. But, you know, maybe there's... Uh, I mean, when you talk about whether they've got responsibilities to the community, what about the responsibilities they have to themselves and safeguarding their own future? And I think that's quite a, quite a significant issue for them now, now as they decide what to do with this massive jackpot that they've got. We'll also talk a little bit about Louis van Gaal and why um, some of the journalists didn't like it when he came in with a handout and explaining to them what had really happened in the West Ham game. And, uh, I mean, it seems like, well, at least he's, he's taking them seriously. Yeah. Well, kind of, kind of seriously. Like, a, like the way a teacher takes, takes the students in his class seriously. Well, while everyone still recognises the, you know, the power, where the power lies in the, the relationship. Well, it's they're not yeah, equals, but he's trying to help. It's like the, it's the famous Brian Clough line. You know how he solved disputes. Well, I'd argue my point. The other person would argue their point, and we both decide I'm right. Yeah, that seems to be the uh, that's Louis van Hall, tone of Louis Van Hal. All right, we're going to wrap things up. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, Facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. I'd like to thank you, Ken, and you too, Owen, and you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. And most of all, thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.